Welcome to the Philacrosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. How's it going, everybody? Really excited to welcome Drew McMinn to the Philacrosophy Podcast. Drew is the second-year head coach at the University of Utah, and uh, really fired up to have you on. Drew, how you doing? Good, Jamie. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be on the show. How is life on the other side of the Rocky Mountains? It's awesome. I mean, right now we're getting crushed with some snow. So last winter was a little bit of a down winter. And uh, I think the town's pretty excited with the snowfall that we've had so far. So, but as you know, out, out West, even on these snow days, you still sometimes get those bluebirds where it's beautiful weather and sunny. So no, uh, no complaints, just getting back on the field here too. So Love it. Yeah. Well, you might get two feet of snow up at, uh, up at the top of little Cottonwood Canyon and, and have uh 50 and sunny down, down in the Valley. Yeah, exactly. Honestly, Utah is the most incredible place that way where you can like literally drive 35 to 45 minutes and be at the top of Alta or be at practice. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, no, all the slopes from, I mean, even from campus, I mean, you're looking at 25, 30 minutes tops, whichever slope you're getting to up the canyon. So yeah, pretty, pretty nice having it in such close proximity. Yeah, very cool. Um, Well, I want to uh, talk about so many different things with you, um, but but first, let's just talk about um, where you came from. You grew up in Pittsburgh. You went to Providence College, and then you went on at as an assistant for to Bear Davis um, at Robert Morris, where you served as an assistant for six years, and then became the head coach for ten years. Um, so, um, pretty big change for you. Let's just talk a little bit about um, what it was like to sort of start, not start this program, but start this program in your own vision as the new head coach at the University of Utah. Yeah, I mean, coming in, I mean, first and foremost, I mean, certainly felt like there was such a, you know, solid foundation from the previous staff. And, you know, whether you look at the, the personnel on the roster and not only the talent on the field, but just the types of kids that, you know, we quote unquote inherited. Um, you know, just really felt fortunate with just really high character kids and, you know, that fit into the type of culture that, you know, I, I had built in the past when I was at Robert Morris. And, you know, that was what kind of made the, the transition as smooth as possible right off the bat was just coming in and feeling like we had a group of guys that we knew we could work with pretty well on and off the field. And, um, you know, coming in, we certainly let the guys know that, that we were going to put a lot of effort in from our side as a coaching staff to, you know, show that we're going to going to respect where they've come from with their past and how they've done things. And, you know, we asked, of course, in return that there was going to be times where we needed them to, to bend from their end and, you know, get on board with how we were going to do things with some of the changes that were taking place. But, um, you know, that was certainly a big part of coming in is just making it a smooth transition of, you know, letting the guys know that it was going to be a two-way street of, of us, you know, conforming to the way that they had done things and then asking them to make sure that they got on board with the things that we were going to implement moving forward. Yeah, there is definitely some hard work and heavy lifting getting that program off the ground. And I'm sure that you are excited for that hard work that had been done prior to your getting there. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's that's where we felt like we were teed up as well. Obviously, you know, again, with Coach Holman and his staff, I mean, you know, they had gone through, you know, all the pains, as you know, that come with the uh, the first few years of a program and, yep. um, you know, to come in, in in year four and, you know, have the first year competing within a conference, you know, really walked into just an extremely, you know, positive situation overall with with a heck of an opportunity that we knew that we could take advantage of. At Robert Morris, you guys um, were one of the programs that went heavy Canadian. And I want to talk a little bit about that and, and what it taught you about the game and how it sort of helped mold the way you thought about offense and recruiting and fundamentals. Like, how did that shape you as a coach? Yeah, I mean, certainly had a huge impact on, you know, just how we approach the game and, you know, coming up with different styles of play and, you know, doing things a little bit differently than than a lot of other teams are doing at that time, which was, you know, for the most part, the goal that we were trying to accomplish was just do things a little bit different than, you know, what we were running up against, you know, on a week to week basis. And you know, I think when we first started recruiting from Canada, it was really just having the the niche of the close proximity from Pittsburgh to Toronto and you know, really cracked into the Ontario area and, and Bear had started with that when he first got to Robert Morris. And, you know, we just found that there was a heck of a lot of talent up north that, you know, wasn't necessarily getting the same type of recruiting and exposure of, of kids in the state. So um, felt like we could just find some, you know, hidden gems there and, and you know, felt like we had some pretty good success doing that right off the bat. And then, you know, style of play, I mean, at the time, honestly, Jamie, when we were in the CAA, we just felt like athletically we could not match up against any of the teams we were competing against. You know, when it came to, you know, came to trying to run by guys, and, you know, generate offense off the dodge, we just didn't really feel like we were athletic enough to the point of competing with, you know, Delaware and Hofstra and Towson at that time. And, you know, with our Canadians, we really started trying to get creative and just saying, hey, if we can't beat guys off the dodge, we got to start really focusing on the off-ball play and, you know, running more two-man actions and, you know, really did a lot with trying to attack adjacents and draw guys where we weren't necessarily doing it by getting into getting into threatening space. It was more just utilizing the two-man game and, and getting guys exposed to off-ball where we felt like we're, we, you know, where we could get our best advantages. So um, the Canadians being, you know, of course, mainly one-handed and, you know, playing the style that they play, we went a lot more with strong hands to the middle and, you know, started dodging a lot more towards the middle of the field. And, you know, of course, you know, felt like with the transition game, we could put guys in position where, again, we didn't necessarily have to beat people off the dodge, but, you know, we could set up guys for off-ball opportunities that had the hands, the stick work, and the finishing ability to produce in those areas. So, you know, once once we had the, the personnel that we had with the, the heavy recruiting that we had done in Canada – it certainly really started shaping the way that we were playing. So we're trying to basically design our offense off of what the strengths were of that personnel. It's, it's really interesting because basically it's, it's almost like the constraints led approach that you think of when you're trying to design drills was uh, the effect on your program as a whole, as far as the way you recruited, because you just weren't going to go and uh, recruit as high caliber players from the U S at that time to, to, to the upstart, um, you know, sort of out of the hotbed area in Pittsburgh, but you could go out and get, you know, some of the best kids in Ontario. And likewise, um, you know, you couldn't play the standard way that everybody was playing at that time. 
of dodging alleys and drawing slides and redodging and getting a few X to the backside and running all these sets that required two-handed dodging middies. Um, you had to figure it out. And it, it was uh, just a classic, um, you know, um, example of the evolution of, of you know, um, this opportunity was the mother of invention. Yeah, no, absolutely. So how do you look at player development now having spent so much time with Canadians and now, you know, you're probably going to recruit some Canadians to Utah, but you also have a lot of kids that are a little bit more traditional, but how do you look at developing players so that they can take uh, the best of these concepts from box across and apply them to field lacrosse? Yeah. I mean, a lot of it of course starts with the skill development. I mean, we're, we're huge with just the amount of time and the emphasis that we put on just, you know, the skill work within practice. I mean, Typically for us, I mean, 40 minutes of our practice is dedicated towards skill work, you know, and, and offensively, I mean, specific on that end of the field with, you know, again, the Canadian style of play and how we can bleed that into all players. I mean, we're, of course, running a lot of two-man actions and, you know, just working those components into everything that we do, running a lot of 2v2s, running a lot of 3v3s, 4v4s, and, you know, we have kind of our, our concepts on the perimeter of, of how our guys have their reads and the two-man actions. And, um, you know, we, we work that stuff daily, you know, and we were we were extremely pleased last year just having some guys that were a little bit more traditional kind of two-handed guys that, you know, wanted to get up to the 45 and dodge downhill. And, you know, we give them a time and place for that. But at the same time, we wanted them to, you know, really incorporate the skills of, of running the two-man game and, you know, the style of offense that, you know, that I had been used to running before coming here. And, you know, like I said, just extremely pleased with, you know, the guys being able to just take a different style of play and, you know, put it into action and work on it every day. And by the time we got to spring, I mean, we felt like from a personnel standpoint, our guys were doing everything that we were asking them to do to play the style of play that we wanted to. You mentioned that you take 40 minutes a day on, on skill development. What are some examples of, of, of what you do to work on skills? Um, you know, how much of it is live? How much of it is, is just uh, reps, um, you know, stick work, pure reps versus, you know, kind of situational with, with um, the context of teammates and opponents? Yeah, so it's, it's, of course, a mix of both, um, you know, but we, we really emphasize just the number of touches guys get in a practice. I mean, you know, I'm sure you've done the same thing. There was points in times where we went through drills and, you know, picked guys and just started counting how many touches they were getting and, you know, found some of our drills are just extremely inefficient that, you know, the big picture looked great. And then when you keyed in on one guy, you're like, wait a second, we ran an eight minute segment and he had, you know, one touch per minute, you know, and, and yeah. that, that became a big point of emphasis was just, you know, how we can be extremely efficient and just maximize the number of touches that the guys are getting within our drills um, but we'll we'll do a mix of both with, you know, straight stick work, as you mentioned, versus just more of the, the actual contact type of stuff. Um, but, you know, a lot of it we do positionally, you know, we'll break up typically for about 15 to 20 minutes at the minimum each day. You know, and it's working on more, you know, position specific stick work fundamentals, whether it's shooting or, you know, again, working on specific two man passes and, you know, we, we let the guys get creative. I mean, we'll, we'll do drills where we encourage them. We want them throwing backhanded passes. We'll throw one-handed passes and, you know, do some different things where we just want them to open up their skill set. And, 
you know, we of course explain to them, we're not asking them to play the game that way, you know, for 60 minutes, but there's a time and a place where those skills, you know, are needed. And, you know, we really try to allow the guys to just be creative and, you know, work in every different type of, you know, stick work that they can within our drills. So, you know, a big part of it is just letting them, you know, kind of find where they're best suited with, you know, their fundamentals, but can certainly remember back, you know, early on at Robert Morris and we were sitting there still pushing everything being overhand and over the top and, you know, had Canadians come in that were dropping their stick below their waist. They're the best shooters on our team. So <laughs> scratch our head a little bit. And, you know, since then, just over the years, we really just encouraged the creativity with the stick work and, and even utilized one of the years from back in the day. We, we did a couple practices over the years with just all behind the backs. I remember that was something that you did at Denver at one point where you let them do a practice, like what, a practice a week doing that? Well, we had at Denver, we had this, uh, this concept of creative throwing skills, I think we called it, because it could be for shooting and passing, where we might put the constraint in that you in a particular drill, maybe not for a whole day, but definitely for some drills. And it could be in a six on six, but, but basically to encourage the players to experiment, we said, you can't throw the ball on the run unless it's not forehand. But if you set okay. your feet, you can throw it however you want. So if okay. you set your feet, which I really wanted to encourage anyways, which is the hitches and drags and stuff like that. I, I would probably consider a backpedal drag, like setting your feet, like a wind up. Okay. So yeah. I would say, listen, if you're winding up in any way, you can throw it however you want. If you're on the run, it has to be one hand backhand around the world. I didn't really care how they did yeah. it, but, but I just didn't want them to judge. So this was a way for them to choose what skill they wanted to do and be able to figure out how to set their feet and fire a ball. Because you want to be able to, you got to be able to move the ball a little bit if you're doing it in six on six. But I really yeah. wanted them to be able to experiment with new angles, um, and 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 understand that part of this, part of this was just like being able to complete passes with in different ways and see the game from different angles, the, the same way Canadians do. That's what they do basically. Yeah, exactly. And that's sort of like we we do a lot of the broken down smaller space drills and. You know, most of those are with even with our attackmen. I mean, we'll have guys play just dummy defense, at least simulating some defense when we hit the two man games and, you know, just a lot of smaller space drills that, of course, you know, are, are what kids are running in box their whole lives or you just get used to working in the tight spaces. But, you know, same for us in the creativity side. We just want to encourage that stuff and make sure guys know that if there's a time and place to use it, then, you know, we're putting that work into practice and, and repping it where they should be comfortable when the, you know, when the opportunities arise to do something that's, you know, a little bit more non-traditional. Yeah. And those little small sided games, you know, listen, if it's all attack and there, it's attack against attack and you're working on two man games against each other, you know, you can call it dummy defense because usually the defense that attackmen are playing is like dummy defense anyways, but you can get them to give you a look. You can be like, Hey, switch or don't switch. So you can begin to have the reads that you want to, to be able to practice because those passes that you're talking about are a result of the situation uh, po posed to the offense by the defense. Exactly. How much small sided stuff, because it's so interesting to me that when you said you counted your reps, I, I would encourage any coach to do this. I would, I would say it'd be crazy if you didn't. Uh, and I have done a lot of rep counting at, at different levels. And it's, 
it's actually alarming how few reps you will get. Even when you think you've got a really high tempo practice, um, just by the nature of team, even if you have 15 guys at a net and you're doing three on twos, you know, you're not getting that many chances. And part of it, you know, believe it or not, I mean, because a lot of times there's no need for a pass. <laughs> so you're out there and the guy just rips it. It's like, all right, well, I didn't touch it on that rep. And then next thing you know, five minutes later, how many t- chances did you even get to do anything? And I think small-sided games, and particularly with smaller nets, com- combats this issue of yeah. trying to reduce numbers but create enough. A small net basically makes – uh, you make more passes. It, 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 yeah. it you ha- that's why box players do what they do is because it, they can't just shoot it on the first time. They actually have to move without the ball and move the ball in order to get it to the backside to have enough angle to score. You put that together with small sided, and now all of a sudden you are getting quite a few reps. Exactly. Are you guys yeah. doing very small sided stuff in your game, in your practices? We do, yeah. I mean, we do it, of course, with the unevens and running the West Jennies and, and those types of mini games. but we do a ton with even as well. We do a lot of 3v3s and like 15-yard spaces and, you know, really, again, just challenge the guys to operate where you do have to make those extra passes and you have to handle in tight space. And, you know, with, with any given day, I mean, I'd say, you know, 20 minutes of mini games are worked into our practice. That's what I was yeah. wondering. So you're, how, can you describe the mini games? Yeah, so we'll do, I mean, we do various ones. I mean, with the West Jennies, we'll put the cages in both directions. So there's times where, you know, we'll be 20 yards on one side of the midfield line, but only 10 on the other. And the side with 20, the cage is facing forward where it's, you know, an even attack from up top and like a 3v3 setting. Then when it comes back the other way, once you cross the midfield line, it's more simulating coming from behind the cage. Um, You know, and we'll do ones with turning the cage sideways as well so that you're just you know, coming from a different angle. And again, we do it with evens and unevens. And then we'll run, you know, straight up mini game competitions, more of like your 4v4s within the restraining box and um, 3v3s within the restraining box. But, you know, really it's it, it's running the same drill, but it's just changing the format as far as the numbers that we're putting into it and then the, angle, the angles that you're attacking from just by turning the nets either, you know, forwards or backwards or, you know, attacking in from the side as well. I think it's really cool to have the nets either facing away from each other or in your case, facing the same direction so that you can practice a small sided game attacking from behind. What are some of the things you're seeing? What are some of the skills that are emerging from the, that angle of the net? Yeah. I mean, again, just being able to operate, you know, especially coming in, I think traditionally guys are more comfortable, of course, attacking from up top or attacking from behind and, you know, we'll do it where sometimes we have all the attack and the D going where, you know, they're, of course, dodging from behind the cage, attacking that side, and then the middies are all coming from up top. But, you know, when we go from the sides, I mean, guys just get, like, a lot more creative with having to, especially if they are keeping their, keeping their strong hand and working on the, you know, the offs of the field. You know, just seeing guys get creative with, you know, with how to handle and, you know, how to distribute the ball with staying on one half of the field and, you know, that was something, again, with Canadians, just, you know, splitting them on a half of the field and putting them on the side that they're not as comfortable on. Yeah. You could see just the creativity pick up with, with finding ways to still keep the stick in the strong hand, even if it's not, you know, necessarily where you would want it if you were a two-handed player. But, 
you know, with, with us now, with our personnel, and we get guys that we encourage to switch hands, but, you know, we have guys like with our strong hand and attackmen, we're telling them in those drills, find a way to keep your stick in your strong hand and position yourself accordingly. So, you know, again, just a little bit more unorthodox spaces that we put them into in those, but, you know, just gets their level of comfort up, you know, or, of course, in the game, they could be put in those positions and we want them to feel comfortable and not feel like they just have to get to where they're, you know, most of it. I want to stay on the topic of uh, two-man game. You've talked about about it a lot, two-man actions. Um, first of all, how do you view two-man game in the in the scope of your offense? How, how, what percentage of the time you, do you want to run it, and how are you thinking about it in the different spots of the field, and how do you kind of install it? Yeah, so as far as, you know, the percentage of how much we run it, it, it's really up to our guys. I mean, we have calls to bring a guy to the ball, um, you know, and once we do that, you know, it, it's up to them to obviously read and react, whether we're looking to, to drift, whether we're looking to get underneath, whether we're looking to come over the top. But, you know, we give the guys the, the options to make those reads. If they want to ISO, they're just not calling another guy to the ball, you know, and, and, for our roles, we essentially, you know, really work with the three main concepts and we have little nuances of each, but, you know, we really look, work with as the ball moves towards you, you're either drifting, you're getting underneath or else you're getting, coming over the top, you know, and our, our actions when we're getting underneath could be, you know, involve the pick game. We, we really teach if, you know, your defender is staying behind you and waiting off on that potential switch, we want to clear through immediately you know, versus if the ball carrier is getting caught in front, or I'm sorry, if the off-ball man's getting caught in front of you a little bit, you know, that's where we want to pick for the ball and really plan on the ball carrier being able to get the advantage. Um, you know, we have our reads when we get underneath. When we come over the top, it's either a throw-down, pick-down, or else we'll hit a flip or a fake flip action. But, you know, the the rules of our offense, I mean, it, it stays in flow because as we run those actions, we have to balance the set behind it. So, you know, if it's a shallow cut or we're coming Coming over the top, it's pretty easy because we're replacing one another. But, yeah. you know, if we're pulling a guy from the crease and, you know, therefore getting out of our set, we need to make sure we're replacing in with somebody. You know, but uh, to avoid the the script and, you know, the more scoutable offense, I mean, we really work, let our guys work within those concepts as opposed to telling the guy who's filling in on the backside. If we vacate the crease and we're going to set a two-man action from the inside – anybody's free to balance up that set and fill in from the backside there. So, um, you know, as the ball moves towards us, we have our reads, but, you know, once you hit your action, you know, the, the set has to stay balanced behind it there. So, um, but up, up top, I mean, we, we run, I'd say probably about 50, 50 with guys isolating. We have, you know, of course, personnel based things that we do there where some of the guys we want getting big air and coming downhill and, some of the guys we encourage more to work that two-man game, whether from the wing or up top. And then from behind the cage, I mean, we, we've really gone pretty heavy towards running a lot of our initiations with the two-man action to start. Um, you know, but again, the, the rules stay the same as, as we're running those two-man actions. Whatever we decide to hit, we just have the rule that you have to balance the set behind it there. Defensively, um... Sometimes it seems like you just can't get a look on certain defenses when you run your two-man game, particularly when, you know, like the University of Maryland last year really really made some offenses feel un uncomfortable, like they weren't creating anything. I think sometimes when you go back and watch it, you, you had maybe a little more than, than what it felt like. But particularly this, this um, 
defense where they stack and whack. Some people call it a dog, you know, but basically where, where, where the shorty whose man's usually picking sort of steps out and whacks while the on-ball guy goes under. Or in the case of Maryland, sometimes they were actually going over too. It was interesting. But, yeah. but my question is what every, every action has, you know, every coverage has, has, there's a solution for and um, what would you say the solution for that defense is in two-man offense? What's the, what, what do you teach your guys when they're stacking and whacking? Yeah, I mean, a lot of times with that, we look to slip, you know, just because, again, as soon as their attention diverts towards the ball carrier and they're looking to step up there, if that, you know, if that defender is on the inside of you with, with the ball carrier coming to that pick, yep. you know, we feel like we can beat them to that space to just slip behind the ball there. You know, we get we get aggressive to throw those slip passes. I mean, that's you know that's another area for us where you know we're okay with the guys hitting the backhand pass if it makes sense or doing what they need to do to get it there or you know using one hand to make the pass if they're rolling away from you know from that stack right there. So yep. we're we're going to be aggressive if you're going to leave you know that off ball man in any way whatsoever to try to help towards the ball carrier even if it is just you know stepping out and trying to kind of get that you know that slam pick so to speak you know, we, we want to make sure we expose that, you know, and, and again, that's our role. We're reading our off ball man. And, you know, if he's going to divert his attention towards the ball carrier, like I said, then we're going to look to make sure that we're moving it to his man and trying to expose him off ball. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, basically it's, it's a, it's a, it's a prime slip opportunity. It's surprising that more people aren't getting it, but I think it's because they're over dodging it. I think yeah. the deal is, is that, is that if you are the Dodger and you run into that shorty, um then 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 you all of a sudden don't have the angle to pass it oftentimes that you want uh, you're getting you're creating ball pressure for yourself exactly but but due to the fact that the majority of the time the on ball defender is going under there's yeah. no ball pressure there's nobody on the dodger so why run into the guy that's looking to give you the whack and give you the ball pressure that it would require to eliminate your ability to feed a slip. I mean, all you like literally have to do is just slow down, hesitate, jab towards that whack guy, jab yep. towards the shorty, make him sit there for a second while your man's running away from you. Exactly. You'll have the look. Um, to me, I, I just wonder about that um, just simply because I, I see so much success defensively out of this look, but it just seems – so attackable if you slow down and slip. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's where when you're showing different variations too, like we will get the flips coming back over the top. And, you know, I think when you know that there's a potential for essentially every option off ball, it yeah. also just makes it harder. You know, I mean, you're less certain when you're defending there and you don't feel as comfortable stepping off for that slam. You know, if you know the guy could potentially get underneath you or come over the top, but like you said, if the focus is on trying to create with the ball carrier, you know, I think you lose some of those opportunities of how to expose that guy stepping up off ball. Totally. How much do you emphasize um, the concept of um, creating separation from your defender when you're the picker? Uh, I did a podcast with this guy, Alex Sarama. Um, he's a basketball coach, unbelievably smart guy. I don't know if you checked it out or not, um, but he talks about this concept of a triple A rating for his pickers meaning always arrive alone. And I feel like that is another 
incredibly important part. I'm curious, you know, your Canadians would be doing this naturally. They do it all the time. Um, yeah. How do you sort of take advantage of that. Yeah. I mean, we emphasize the separation before you're actually getting there with the two-man action. And then of course the separation, you know, once we hit our action. So, you know, with our picks, we don't want to get caught just standing there and waiting for the ball carrier to come to us. You know, I mean, we do a lot with more of the blindside picks and then of course, you know, trying to catch our own defender off guard where, you know, again, rather than going up and setting up in that spot where we want to pick, you know, we're literally going to try to get him off guard where we race and, you know, immediately pop off from our, our off ball positioning and then go right into the two man action. So, um, and that's, that's where I was coming from too, with pulling guys off the crease. Yeah. You know, they can get guys exposed there where, you know, they're in a sliding position and then all of a sudden we're essentially sprinting out towards the ball, you know, from the inside and then setting an immediate two man action with it. So, you know, we, we certainly emphasize trying to separate, you know, as we're getting there. And then, of course, once we're either slipping or coming over the top, I mean, we, we really want to make sure that the point we emphasize is catch the ball where your man can't recover to play you. You know, so we want to physically beat him into the space where he can't get back to play us. And, you know, that way we're either in or else we're drawn the next man. You mentioned earlier um, that when you were at Robert Morris in the, in, the, in the CAA back in the day that you guys really had to um, begin to learn how to utilize off-ball actions to create offense because you couldn't just run by people as much as you wanted to. We've, we've, and you mentioned two-man too. We've hit on the two-man. Talk a little bit about, if you would, the off-ball emphasis that you have now that, that you probably learned through those years playing, working with Canadians because I, I truly feel like the off-ball – pick actions are almost like uncharted territory. It's not that they never happen, but they just, they, they, I, I don't think it's even close to utilize as, as much as the opportunities out there. Um, there's a lot of exchanges, but defense don't really have to do anything on an exchange. They can zone it up. But if you start using pick actions off ball, those actions have to be covered. And I'm curious how yeah. you look at that with your, um, with your, with your offense. Yeah, so that, that's something that we run into, Jamie, with what you said there with just the exchanges. A lot of times, obviously, defenses over the years have started just zoning those exchanges and you don't really feel like you get the advantage out of it. So, you know, for us, again, that's why we put in more of that concept of just making sure we balance the set where, you know, we might not just have a straight exchange off ball. We could vacate the crease. You know, if a guy has a, a lane to pop into from the inside and he leaves and gets to the perimeter, Again, we're not getting a straight exchange. We're just making sure that somebody fills into the crease behind them. So, you know, we allow our guys to make those calls on their own. And again, yep. it's just so that we're not always hitting the exact same scripted actions, that it's not just a, you know, point A to point B exchange. You know, we want to make sure that we're showing different variations. And, you know, with the off-ball concepts that we have, again, the, the ones that I had mentioned to you with the two-man are more like our perimeter rules. And yep. then on the inside, I mean, we run a lot of picking actions there, a lot of just, you know, kind of flash and show actions where, you know, we're either spreading out or else we're running picks for one another on the inside. And then, you know, we'll do a lot too with just, you know, more of the off-ball backside exchanges, you know, and again, sometimes we'll do it as a rotation where we get three guys involved. Sometimes we'll yep. do it with two, you know, just so that we're actually making the defense move as opposed to having that op option to zone up. But, you know, the, the simple fundamentals of the off-ball play are, are really what we feel are most important. You know, what Canadians just naturally possess from playing in the box game. But, you know, having your shoulders square to the ball at all times, constantly having your stick up above your shoulder and, 
you know, really working to be in a lane to the ball carrier at all times. And, you know, that's something that we constantly push across. I mean, it's pretty difficult in an entire offensive possession to, to not get caught with, you know, not having a lane to the ball carrier. You know, and, and we want our guys, whether it's on the inside or on the perimeter, just constantly working to make sure that they're an option to be the next person to receive the ball, whether, you know, they're an adjacent or whether they're, you know, on the backside and a skip opportunity. Yeah, so we, we really just harp on those off-ball fundamentals that every guy's got to have his stick above his shoulders, shoulders square to the ball, and then just constantly in motion to, to have a lane to the ball carrier at all times. How much advantage do you take of simple backdoor cuts and give and goes? I mean, quite a bit, especially with, you know, our, our two-man game and, you know, the way that we run those reads there. I mean, the, the back cut is more the look that I didn't mention, but – you know, that's, that's one that we certainly try to utilize a lot. I mean, if we try to get a drift look and it's not there, I mean, a lot of times we'll try to just immediately to the middle for a back cut. Um, we do a lot too, where we'll, you know, we'll make that first pass. I remember, you know, Dave Huntley kind of covering this at the convention years ago, but, you know, talking about coming out of the two-man game and on that slip, everybody always wants to immediately get it to that guy out of the two-man action, but you know, more of that concept of throwing it forward to the adjacent off the two-man action and then looking to feed the slip from there. You know, and that, that's another area where, you know, we feel like we're essentially using more of an off-ball screen because once that ball moves, you know, we're, we're hitting kind of that slip, you know, off that initial action there. So, um, but yeah, cert certainly emphasize it a lot, you know, away from the ball. I love that concept of feeding the feeder. Yeah. The whole defense can, can see the pick and roll happening, and they're going to, even if you create an advantage, they're going to help to try to cover up that advantage. When the ball moves to a third player, oftentimes that advantage still exists, and now they can't cover it up uh, as well. Oftentimes, yeah. the person they're covering it up with has to go guard the ball. Yeah, exactly. What what do you uh, what do you guys like to run out of like as far as sets go? Do you do you, do you have like specific sets that you're running generally, or are you kind of like just saying, guys? Listen, sometimes there's one crease, sometimes there's two, sometimes there's zero. How do you? Yeah, we'll, we'll still keep the sets in place just because again, that's that's what answers for us. You know where everybody has to be off ball, and when we talk about balancing the set, you know they have to understand obviously what positions we're supposed to be in there. So. Um, sets are still definitely a big part of, you know, the, the structure of the offense, but, you know, we allow them, as I said, to flow freely within it, but we'll, we'll run a lot out of a one, four, one up top. Um, we, we get a little bit into an open set too. I mean, that's something that I think is a little bit of a lost art. I mean, defenses prepare so much for their three slide packages and, you know, we try to, especially with opening up the two man game and opening up the middle a little bit and, also just giving our, you know, our more athletic guys some extra space to dodge into the middle of the field. So, you know, from up top, we primarily work out of the one four one and then the open set. And then, you know, much of what we do behind is out of the, the, the two, 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 you know, so we'll, we'll run and, and we get into other variations, but I mean, those are definitely more of the, the fundamental sets that we work out of is the one four one and the, the open up top and then more of the two, two, two from behind. What's your uh, man-up philosophy, especially having uh, recruited and worked with so many um, Canadians? What, what, what are you trying to do EMO-wise? Yeah, so we do. I mean, so much of our offense is predicated around the 2v1s and, you know, and, and how to execute the 2v1s and breaking it down to the simple fundamentals. So, you know, we, we do a lot of unscripted stuff where, you know, we, we ran an open set, you know, for the last few years with everybody above the cage. You know, some more of that sideways 3-3 look. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, and, and we'll run that against a five man and then a, against a box and one, a lot of times we'll just run the three, three and more so isolate the three B two up top. But, mm-hmm. you know, what we really emphasize is just, you know, stepping into the gaps and, and, you know, being able to isolate two V ones and, and reduce the numbers down on either side of the field. So, um, our, our sets kind of, you know, are to put us in the gaps based upon either going against a five man or a box and one. And then, you know, once we're in those gaps, I mean, a lot of it's just running out our concepts of our two V ones and, you know, we'll still run some traps with some throw down pick downs and, you know, get into the gaps by, by carrying over top of the, the picks there. But, you know, we really let our guys operate within those sets and, you know, work our two V one concepts and, and stay away from scripting too much. Mm-hmm. We have our set plays that we'll go to, but you know they're more so just those quick hitter looks, and and if they're not there, we expect our guys to snap right back in, and then more so execute the concepts that we have. In place. But that that sideways three three has definitely been kind of like a blueprint for us in the man up game. Why? Um, I just think it's I mean it's it's difficult to execute offensively because you're in tight space, you know, and again with all six guys above the cage, I mean it takes very high level stick work to be able to up to operate with it but you know we just find that it's against a five man especially i mean we're essentially isolating a 4v3 up top you know because we put two guys on the top or two guys on the pipes that essentially have the the other four guys umbrella right in the gaps you know against the three guys defending up top so um that set for us just against a five man we just feel like really you know puts us in the best positions to you know, to isolate two V ones. And then, you know, ideally we're trying to break one side of the field down to a three V two. Yeah. Really interesting. How often do you cut, cut a guy into the space? I mean, I feel like sometimes in a sideways um, that that can be the best look is just flashes yeah. in there. Yeah. I mean, we give our guys the freedom of, of cutting as they choose. And again, we keep the same role in place where they have to balance the setup. So if they're not getting the, the feed to the inside, when they do cut to the middle, they have to replace back out to the perimeter. Um, a, lo- a lot of what we found too, I mean, we like to cut the backside once you rotate, you know, so once we force that rotation, we just cut in from either the back pipe or the back wing, just straight into the middle of the field as the defense is rotating yeah. there. So yeah. Um, you know, those, those are the most prevalent times we're cutting, but again, we tell the guys if they have a lane and they can get to quality shooting space, then, you know, we're giving them the freedom to move there. And like I said, if they don't get it, we just need them to snap right back into the formation of of our set. Love it. We'll switch gears and talk a little defense. What's your guys, um, overall defensive philosophy and how are you trying to play? Um, and how do you develop that? Yeah, I mean, certainly aggressive at that end of the field. I mean, again, with being a high, you know, high level transition team and wanting to push the D to O stuff as much as possible, we need to make plays at that end of the field. So, um, you know, we play an aggressive style of defense. I mean, we look for a lot of doubling opportunities and, you know, really want to get out and force the issue as much as we can with just applying pressure and, and putting the offense under duress. And, you know, we, we work so much, again, on going from defense to offense that, you know, if we're not playing that style, if we're sitting back, we're, we're just not going to get the same number of opportunities. So, um, you know, more, more so kind of feeding the beast at the other end of the field. We want to make sure that we're creating number advantages, you know, from D to O. And, of course, we're going to do that by creating double teams and, and really pushing the transition game. So, um, you know, overall, big thing for us is is really just making sure that, you know, we're putting ourselves in position to be a playmaking type of defense versus sitting back and, and covering, so to speak. 
So um, you referenced double teams. Um, how are you trying to get these doubles off of jumping picks or sort of like, you know, going early on inside rolls when you turn somebody, maybe sliding to a, a midfielder that, you know, is a lefty split split roll down the righty alley type of thing. I mean, um, are those some of the things you're, you're trying to accomplish? Yeah. You named a handful of them. So <laughs> that's, uh, you know, for us, I mean, we have our doubling rules. I mean, we will double from behind the ball, especially driving up for max, um, you know, we, we double any time we're within six feet of the ball, you know, so that's an area that we just want to make sure that we take advantage of. If you're that close, you know, we, we want to try to make a play. And, you know, if it's the two-man game, we're, of course, going to be aggressive there as well. I mean, we'll use that kind of that stack and whack that you mentioned uh, just to at least get a little bit of aggressive, you know, more aggressive there. But then we'll also work a lot of double teams there and see if we could jump the ball and rotate behind it. So, you know, all the all those areas you mentioned are certainly areas we're looking to just be aggressive and see if we can find ways to make plays. And, you know, that's the it's of course live live by the sword, die by the sword. But yeah, uh, you know, we we feel that you know the number of times we get exposed will hopefully outweigh by the plays that we make and the opportunities that we then create from defense to offense. How about from the perspective of uh, ball pressure, um, as far as taking pressuring the ball, but also pressuring adjacents, particularly in the direction the ball is going or the direction that you think they, you know, if you're getting a double team to push out on that adjacent so they can't easily move the ball while you're doubling. Yeah, we have a call for that. And again, you know, common theme, I keep bringing it up, same as on the offensive end, but we give our guys the, the, the freedom to be able to make those calls. If they feel comfortable with their matchup, we want them being aggressive and, you know, that's, that's an area we don't want somebody else making that call for them, whether it's, you know, player or us us from the sidelines we want the guys doing it when they know they have the wind and you know they want their matchup and they want to try to expose it so you know we have a call in place where we'll just press the adjacents and you know go to work a little bit and see if we can get a quick one to, to get the ball back and going our way and then you know another one for us I mean we the same thing as offense I mean we have a 6v5 for three seconds we're trying to attack it you know if we get that that two-step jump out of the the sub we're going to attack that 6v5 same thing on the flip side defensively. Any number advantage, I mean, we're going to look to try to get at least a little bit of a dog opportunity in double ball. You know, so, I mean, when when teams sub off on the offensive end of the field right after the possession starts, you know, a lot of times we're aggressive even just with like a five or six second window there to just see if we can jump the ball carry real quick as they're subbing. And, you know, again, hopefully not get exposed on the back end of it. But, you know, the, the offensive mindset of always attacking numbers, we carry over to the defensive end as well. And, you know, if we can get, a, again, a, a small window of an opportunity to try to double the ball quickly and cause some panic, then then we're going to try to take advantage of that. How much have you uh, statted out um, your efficiencies in your various sort of uh, um, different scenarios, such as in the three-second six-on-five? Um, yeah. Or in, um, you know, even in transition. I mean, I think sometimes we all think that we're going to get more, score more goals, you know, in transition because the numbers are better. And it's probably true sometimes, but it's probably not true other times. How do you, how, how do you look at that analytically? Yeah, we, I mean, we break down all of that stuff, as you can imagine. And defensively, I mean, the, the double teams at the start of possessions, I mean, that was one that, you know, again, was really derived off of breaking down the stats, and the analytics, where we just really didn't feel like we were ever being exposed in those scenarios. Yep. And a lot of offenses just don't feel aggressive to try to kind of get out of their comfort zone and attack when it is such a small window where, 
you know, for us, we're working on that on both sides of the ball so frequently that, you know, our, our guys are comfortable there. And, you know, that was one for us. We just, you know, we felt like the the plays were showing up a lot more than, than the number of times we were getting exposed. We were trying to get those double team opportunities. And then, you know, the, the shot breakdown that we do, I mean, we look at the efficiency of, of every type of shot that's taken. So, you know, we, we break our shots down into how you generate the offense and transition, whether it's off of a clear, off of a ride, a ground ball, uh, quick whistle, subbing. Um, and we'll break down just, you know, what our efficiency is in each one of those opportunities that we're pushing. And then, you know, we look at that for our opponent as well, where if teams haven't been very efficient attacking off the sub game, you know, against whatever opponent we're going up against, then that's just not an area we're going to look to attack that. You know, but we we break down the efficiency of, you know, where the ball moves from every up top dodge, where the ball moves from every dodge from behind the cage, what shots are generated out of that, and then what the percentage breakdown is. And then, as I mentioned, we do that in transition, too. And that's that's really a big part of our approach to our scouting is just looking at, you know, what types of shots teams are, are giving up at the highest rate. Mm, so interesting. It's so smart to do that. Um if you were to sort of look at the most efficient situation, what is it? Is it a ride back? Is that where you score the highest level? You ride a ball back, you're going to score at the highest rate of any, uh, or what would that be? And what would the, the first few be? I'm assuming so, six is the, is the last, is the least. Yeah. But I, and, but I don't know. Yeah. And there's kind of two conversations there. There's the efficiency and then there's the volume where with the ride back, like for us this fall, our breakdown, you know, from an inner squad standpoint was the ride backs and the quick whistles were the most efficient shot that we produced off. The quick whistle, like when you get the ball back in a quick whistle, like, yeah, either quick whistle off the end line or any quick whistle in the field of play. Huh? You're looking to attack. So, and and that was a little bit skewed probably because we didn't have, again, that's not an area where you're producing as many opportunities. So the volume wasn't as high, but we ended up being seven for 12 out of shots that we created in that scenario, eight for 12, I think. Um, And then, you know, with the ride backs, it was a little bit higher volume. I think we ended up creating out of our inner squad scrimmages. We had like 16 shots in the ride back, I think 10 goals. Yeah, so I mean, those, those are definitely higher, you know, higher efficiency rates, but of course not shots that you're going to generate as often. But you know, outside of that, for us, I mean, the the clearing game actually pre- presented the next highest, you know, efficiency rate for us. Um, we score, I think, in the fall, we were at like forty percent pushing opportunities from defense to offense. So transitional, you mean, not just clearing anything from defense to offense? Yeah, I mean, we break it down and just kind of categorize it if it goes from D to O. So. Yeah. You know, with the, the number of advantages, if it's a ground ball on the offensive end of the field, we charter it as a, you know, a shot produced off the ground ball. But if it's a ground ball on the defensive end, we're so charter it as a clear, just designating that it's going from D to L. Wow. So that's really interesting. Well, it's not that surprising. You know, I think that people would sort of think that. Um, that's why people like to push it. But um, but where do you draw the line? Because I think so, sometimes there there is value in having the ball as well. Uh, one of the yeah. one of the best scenarios might be scoring at the end of a shot clock, um, yeah. because it was it was time that your opponent didn't have the ball, and we know that there, it's like a running game in football. How do you view the value of a possession as you integrate this attacking mindset? That's an answer I'm still trying to figure out, Jamie. <laughs> um, no, but that it, it's funny you said that because that's when when we had kind of created this shot breakdown. You know, it was, it was really trying to, to dummy down the game and, uh, you know, as far as every way that, you know, somebody produces. 
you know, and, and the one thing we came down to is that exact conclusion. We were like, well, the only thing we're not covering is time of possession. This explains anytime somebody's actually producing on the field, you know, but there's the time of possession component. And, you know, I think, you know, it's mainly just a balance. I mean, that's something that we're obviously trying to, to chart as well and make sure that we're understanding throughout a game. I mean, what that balance of the possessions has been throughout each quarter. Um, you know, ideally, we just strive for 50% time of possession. You know, and with our style, the reason we're not pushing beyond that is with our style of play, we know at times we're going to have shorter possessions. Um, so we, we have found that if we hit that 50% mark and then you combine that with the style of the opportunities that we're getting in some of the quick possessions, you know, that that's, that's that perfect combination for us. Where we're being aggressive. We're taking advantage of a lot of the, you know, the first 15 seconds of every possession that we have. But if we're still finding a way to balance that out and, and be in the 50-50 split on the back end with overall time of possession, we're going to be in pretty good shape. Have you broken down, you know, the clearing to the, the scenarios of four on three, four on four, five on four, five on five, six on five, six on six? Because that that obviously is going to be different. You should you should theoretically have. Yeah. yeah. Or, or, or maybe even attacking when you're five against six, which sometimes is actually higher <laughs> than, than six against five. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we do break down exactly what the number advantages are. And then, you know, a lot of it too is just figuring out where we should be spending our time. Yeah. You know, we're, we're the six V fives for us again, because we, we manufacture a lot of it, but you know, the six V fives are, you know, essentially the easiest number advantage to come up with, of course. And, you know, for us, when we're, we're manufacturing out of the subbing game and, you know, keeping all three over the midfield line, if somebody subs off from the ride, I mean, that that's where we get the most number advantages where, you know, those are, of course, the hardest to execute, the bigger the numbers offensively, kind of the lower percentages you're going to have. So, um, you know, we really spend a lot of time in the 6v5 game just because, you know, that's where we're getting the highest volume of our opportunities. But, um, you know, we will break down, you know, how many 4v3s versus 5v4s versus 6v5s versus evens versus, you know, again, like you mentioned, a 5v6 and, you know, really looking at where where we're producing at the highest levels within those exact breaks, regardless of where they generate from. What about the analytics of whether, you know, assisted shots versus unassisted shots, two-man shots generated off two-man versus isolation? Do you have any stats on those? We do. Yeah, we uh, we actually just started doing from this fall. Um, we broke down not only unassisted and assisted, but then, you know, another thing that we kind of worked into our analytics was just looking at saves. You know, yeah. so we, we started kind of differentiating between a missed shot, a save shot and a goal. Yeah. Um, and kind of working that save shot against you. You know, obviously a missed shot more times than not, that ball is coming back into your possession you know, versus a save or obviously higher percentage chance that the defense is getting that ball back if there's no rebound. So um, that was something we're actually doing that with our players now of having them individually break down their fall shooting, you know, with where their shots were generated on the field, whether or not they're assisted or unassisted from those locations and, you know, being able to, to chart what was saved, what was a missed shot and what was a goal, you know, so they can really see not only, you know, where they're producing from on the field, but, you know, are there higher percentage chances coming from assisted opportunities or, you know, are they coming from, you know, shots on the run down the alley? You know, so just breaking down not only the unassisted versus assisted, but again, you know, what the end result is, not just whether or not you scored. So cool. Love it. All right. Last topic. Let's talk a little bit about the University of Utah and recruiting. 
um, give us the, uh, the the pitch on uh, on what's so awesome about it. I've been to the campus. It's incredible, built into the side of mountains, incredible campus, Pac-12 athletics, but I'll let you uh, kind of elaborate. Yeah, I mean, the, the pitch is to just show up. <laughs> Once you get here, I think it's a, a pretty hard place to beat. So, yeah. um, as you said, I mean, we, we're literally right at the foot of the mountain. So, um, just just the scenery that you get, I mean, you know how it was in Denver and you know, I'd, I'd like to say I think we're kind of a Denver on steroids with having the mountains so close. But, um, you know, just just waking up to, you know, to the scenery every single day and what you get in this part of the country is just so different and unique from, you know, certainly anything that I was used to growing up in the Midwest and going to school on the East Coast. So, um, you know, it's truly just a different opportunity and experience that, you know, than anywhere else in the country. And, you know, just the the lifestyle, I mean, just, you know, with the weather, I mean, that's one thing we kept hearing was just the, the winters and the snow. And, you know, as you know, you get here. And even at that time of the year, as we mentioned earlier, I mean, it's still just beautiful weather year long. It's mild. You know, and the outdoor life, I mean, you know, the, the amount that we have to do with our guys that are just at our disposal with doing hikes up in the woods, taking them to lakes. I mean, we camp up in, in Heber and, and stay in a lodge up there at the end of every fall ball now. And, you know, just give them opportunities that really don't exist anywhere else throughout the country. And, you know, for us, I mean, it's just so big to enhance the experience beyond the playing field. And I don't think there's a better place in America that offers the opportunities that are offered here to, to be able to just do that, you know, and get the guys away from the playing field and give them some pretty cool opportunities and experiences. And, you know, with the national parks that are nearby and, you know, again, just the scenery that you get that's so different than anywhere else in the country. So, and as you mentioned, I mean, from, you know, the Power Five standpoint, I mean, there's only 11 of us in Division One lacrosse right now. And, you know, we're unique of being the Western one and being in the Pac-12. But, you know, that that level of athletics just offers a whole other ballgame as far as, you know, our guys getting experiences to go out and watch the Pac-12 championship in Vegas. And you know, we probably had about half of our team out at the Rose Bowl for the second year in a row. And, you know, obviously we're excited about the college football playoff coming around the corner, if that's something that Utah can start putting their handprint into. So, um, you know, and, and the resources that come along with that. I mean, you know, I, I've certainly never seen in my career just what's provided here as far as just, you know, every team having their own athletic trainer, every team having their own strength coach, every team having their own nutritionist, you know, four full-time sports psychologists that work within the department. So, you know, resources that, you know, when you're in the power five and, you know, working with the level of football we're working with, it just, you know, kind of gives you that separation of what's provided than, you know, a lot of the other schools that make up division one lacrosse. So sick. <laughs> it's awesome. What up? Uh, talk to us a little bit about um, philosophically in your recruiting. Um, what, what are, what are the, the big pillars of things that you're looking for out of athletes and, 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 and how do you judge them? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, certainly a positional answer. I mean, you know, with our style, again, being so up-tempo and oriented around the transition game, I mean, we, we've never had more than two D-middies specialized on the roster at a time, you know, because we expect our guys to be able to play two ways. So when we re recruit midfielders, it's not just, hey, who's the flashiest guy in the field? You know, we want the guys that can do the intangibles in between the lines and, you know, pride themselves on their defense and their ground ball play and, you know, being the guy that's getting the jump from D to O to, to spark that transition game. So, you know, for, for midfielders, we certainly want those kind of two-way dogs that are going to just feed into the style that we want to play. Yeah. Um, you know, for attackmen, again, we give them ample off-ball opportunities. 
our, our leading scorer last year was, you know, probably the guy that dodged the least out of anyone on the field. So um, with the transition game, I mean, you know, with, with our style, we really want guys that just are extremely efficient with their shooting and their finishing ability. And, you know, we, we typically are going to have one or two attackmen that are also going to dodge and generate for us. But again, we'd, we'd rather have a guy that shoots at a 60% clip and doesn't necessarily have the ball in his stick as much than, you know, a guy that shoots at 30% that might be two-handed and be able to be a little bit more dynamic. So, you know, with the opportunities that you get in our offense for our attackmen, you know, we really emphasize the off-ball, you know, finishing and shooting and the efficiency on that end of things. And, you know, for the defensemen, as I said, I mean, we want guys that can be aggressive, get out there, force the issue, and then, you know, have the stick work to be able to get involved in the transition game and play in between the lines. So, um, you know, again, certainly kind of varies by position of what we're looking for, but, you know, I'm always adamant with our staff that we're not just going out and saying, hey, who's the best kid on the field? It's, hey, who's the best fit for Utah? Yeah. You know, that it's really going to fit our style of play. So, and, and a big one for us, Jamie, I mean, as you know, there's so much talent out there now that, you know, we really pride ourselves in just trying to choose the right people, you know, and, and everyone we bring to campus, we pretty much tell them we don't bring you here until we're sold on what we've seen on the field, you know, and then beyond that, it really becomes about the personal piece of who's going to be the best fit within our culture and the guys that we have here. And, you know, a big part of what we do with the visits is, you know, having them spend time with the team and, you know, we talked to the guys about owning the recruiting process with us and we need to get their feedback of who they were comfortable with and, you know, who they weren't comfortable with. And, you know, they've done a great job of just owning that and being mature with it and, and being willing to come to us and say, hey, coach, we're not sure if this guy is the right fit. You know, and, and at the end of the day, again, you know, we spend 132 days a year together and we're not just looking for great lacrosse players. We want to get guys that we love being around, and you know, that are really going to mesh with, with who we already have here. Totally. Question um, on the uh, on the comment about the attackman who's a great shooter. How do you balance that with, well, what if they put a shorty on them? Because it seems like a lot of coaches um, would love to recruit great shooters, but they tend to default to can this player beat anybody with the fear that they get double or triple pulled or something. How do you view that and how do you evaluate whether a guy could be a good enough dodger for you to be an off-ball guy that's going to still occupy a pole? Yeah, I mean, we certainly want guys that, that can dodge at the highest level possible. But, you know, again, with emphasizing that off-ball play, I mean, a lot of times as we're looking down to, you know, make a, a final decision on kids, it's, you know, hey, we have three or four guys that we feel really confident with fitting into our system and, and you know, really being able to produce off the ball. But, you know, who does bring that dodging element? You know, yeah. and who can be a little bit more dynamic and, and at least be comfortable getting a backside redodge or, you know, if they do draw a short stick, is it a guy that's at least going to be aggressive in that scenario to want to go to the cage? And, you know, again, we're not saying we're getting guys that don't dodge at all, but, you yeah. know, we, we just emphasize that off ball play first and foremost. But, you know, that a lot of times is that next level of kind of separation as we're making our decisions of, okay, who brings a little bit more to the table that can also be dynamic and, and be able to break down this guy and take him to the cage. But, you know, within, within games, I mean, when that happens, again, that's one answer. We're either going to pull that guy out and we're going to go on him and we're going to show you that you made a mistake in putting a short stick on him. Yeah. Uh, you know, we'll also get him involved in the two-man game. And then, you know, one for me that I think is pretty underrated is putting short sticks on the crease and, you know, then exposing them off ball and putting them into sliding positions and, and taking advantage of them there. So, yeah. Um, typically, we'll have one, or, one of those answers as far as what we're going to look to do if you make that decision. We want to 
ultimately make you end up pretty quickly saying, wait a second, I'm not sure if this was the best answer. Yeah. Well, and also you can sort of evaluate athleticism a little bit too. So, you know, there may be a kid that just doesn't dodge much on his club team or his high school team because that's the role he's playing. Yeah. But if he's skilled and really smart and can shoot and is quick as hell, you know, you know that you're probably going to be able to like create offense with that guy when, when you get, when you get your hands on him, you're going to teach him how to do it. Exactly. What about goalies? How do you evaluate goalies? Yeah, I mean, for me, I'm I'm a former goaltender, and you know, certainly have specifics of of what I like to look for. And um, you know, it's it's interesting because I mean, I I still think even having the background with the position, it's it's one of the most difficult positions to recruit, without question, in my opinion. Um, but you know, the the absolutes we look for. I mean, we of course want guys that just you know you can tell track the ball at a very high level. You know, like over the years, there was probably more specific fundamentals that I looked for because of, you know, what I was taught and what I was always, you know, educated on and then came to the realization over the years of like, hey, certain things, if not every great goalie is doing it and it's not an absolute, why are we trying to make it an absolute within our recruiting? So like what? uh, what's that? Like what? Um, I mean, even just like positional things and you know, certain things with stance and, you know, things that can be changed and worked on and, you know, improved upon, you know, originally I felt like those are things we wanted to look for in the recruiting process. But at the end of the day, I mean, we want guys where they track the ball well. I mean, if guys are not reading a shot or they're guessing or anticipating, I mean, for me, that's just number one, we're, we're not working with you. You know, I mean, I think that's, that's something that's hard to change in kids when they get used to, you know, being able to, to duck shots or, you know, kind of change their stance or be unorthodox and, and anticipate. I mean, it's just not the style that I was ever taught. We want guys that stay true and, you know, really, really are trying to track the ball at a high level and, and not anticipate, you know, so, so just watching guys and how they actually track the ball and how they're reading it and whether or not their reactions are true is kind of first and foremost. Yeah. Uh, you know, and beyond that, I think just body control. You know, I mean, you see guys that are just kind of erratic in the cage. They might be athletic and they might see the ball well, but, you know, there's a component of just controlling your body, you know, when when a shot's getting fired at you 100 miles per hour that you're not giving into the natural instincts of what your body wants to do. So, you know, the, the tracking of the ball and then just the control of your body as you move to the ball, you know, and being able to get your steps properly and, you know, move your hands properly and efficiently to the ball you know, are the biggest things we're kind of looking at at the, at the base level there. Tracking the ball is a really interesting way and simple way of looking at it, you know, and basically like catching it might be the easiest way to tell if someone's yeah. tracking it. However, there are shots from distances that you're not going to track it. Yeah. Right. So I, you can name the, the distance. Maybe it's eight, maybe it's seven. I don't know, but it's in that ballpark. Right. So at that point, you're not going to track it. It's too close to track. So how do you judge whether a person is going to be a disaster and dip a dip every time and 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 uh, you know collapse every single time, giving up leaners all day, or have the patience to stand up but sometimes give up a five hole shot? How do you view? Because I think that's the hardest part uh, yeah. to figure out. Yeah, and, and we do. I mean, those are those exact shots that we want to see how kids do respond. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm still a firm believer, even in those types of scenarios. I mean, every now and then you might get lucky with trying to anticipate or guess, but it's amazing how many times shooters just aren't the smartest guys in the world and they'll feed you one into your breadbasket, even, to, and, you know, in a six yard step down where if you stay true and hold your stance and, and you're in position and you take up the most cage possible. 
I mean, in my mind, you know, 20, 30, you know, probably even higher percent of the shots that get taken that should go every single time end up just getting fed to the goalie with giving it to him in a spot that he can actually get to it. Where you yeah. know, shoot smart in those scenarios, I mean, goalie shouldn't ever save the ball. You know, a six-yard no, stop. Yeah. I mean, you place the ball well, you should be putting it past him every single time. But I, I still feel that goalies end up having a lower percentage in those scenarios because of compromising themselves. You know, where when you compromise yourself, again, you're just fully dependent on the one that you get lucky on. Where, like I said, if you're staying true and honest, then, yeah, you know what? In that scenario, 60 70% of the shots are probably going to go. But, you know, you can actually make a pretty good read and, and make a couple saves in those scenarios when somebody is shooting stick side high or putting it up a little bit closer to where you can actually get to the ball. Drew, thank you so much for coming on. This has been awesome. Uh, I've been to the University of Utah. For people that haven't been there, you got to check it out. I totally agree. If you just see it, you'll be blown away by the campus. Uh, now you got a really great sense of how thoughtful Drew uh, is with his program on all facets of the game and how much depth um, you guys are taking to, to to learn and improve and make your team great. So uh, best of luck in 2023, and thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Jamie. Really appreciate it. Awesome, man. Have a good one. You too.